Amen? Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to 1 Peter. We're going to be in chapter 1 this morning. In the month of October, we're actually going to be walking through the entirety of the book of 1 Peter. And so, um, before we begin, there's a little bit of background that we need to know to kind of um, put 1 Peter in the right context. And so the first thing um, is I have to tell you what we don't know about 1 Peter. Um, because there's actually a lot we don't know about 1 Peter. Um, for example, if you look at 1 Peter compared to other epistles, and you know, if you think of the book of Philippians or Colossians or even Romans, right, they're written to one specific group of people. 1 Peter is written to multiple different churches. Um, if you think about those other books, you think about a book like Romans or even um, Philippians, we know who founded those churches. We know when those churches were founded. Um, the churches that are mentioned here in 1 Peter, we have absolutely zero clue who founded these churches. We have no clue how they came into existence. Um, there's, there's some tradition about it, but the Bible doesn't give us, the book of Acts doesn't record these churches being founded. So we have no clue how they came into existence. We have no clue who established them. Um, as far as we know, there's no real solid evidence that Peter ever visited all these churches. Um, And so that makes this interesting. We know nothing about the specific circumstances these churches were going through. If you look at a book like Philippians or even 1 Corinthians, we know there were specific problems that caused Paul to write those letters, right? There was a specific situation happening. In 1 Peter, there's no specific situation. In fact, um, it seems to be just a general letter of encouragement. And so there's a lot we don't know, which kind of makes it an interesting book to study. But but what makes it really, I think, applicable to us is what we do know about 1 Peter. Here's what we do know, and it comes from really the first verse, and that is that Peter is writing to a group of people that have been scattered. And we don't know, we don't know if these were Jews that have been scattered, if they were Gentiles that have been scattered, but for whatever reason, these are people that find themselves in a place where they are outsiders. They are outsiders culturally in that they don't belong to the culture they are part of, They are outsiders socially in that they are now most likely not a part of the social circles of the the towns that they're in. There's even evidence that they are becoming outsiders financially, that they were not able to participate financially in the towns they were part of. And so because of this, they were facing ostracization. They were being um, excluded from, from the areas they were at. And the reason was, it very clear, the reason was, is because of their hope in Christ, because of their, their living as Christians. Now, I think then we can draw an obvious application to our modern situation. We understand that as Americans, while we don't face the persecution that churches across the world might face, we understand that as Christians, our culture is becoming increasingly hostile to living as God has commanded us to live. We are facing increasing persecutions and increasing hostility for holding to a biblical ethic and a biblical idea of how do we live our lives. And that was right where these believers found themselves. Most scholars believe that realistically the the believers that Peter's writing to aren't facing death. They're not being murdered for their faith, but they are facing a, a social outcast. They're becoming social outcasts, right? Which is kind of where we find ourselves today. As, as American Christians, we're finding that, that while we're not facing the persecution that Christians in Iran or China are facing, we are becoming outsiders in the very place where we thought we, we, believed, we lived, right? That our citizenship in America is becoming increasingly hostile to our citizenship in heaven. And so that's the background to which Peter is writing. And so that's why I think that, that as we walk through 1 Peter this month, I think we're going to find it very applicable to what God is calling us to live right now in our situation right now. 
And so that's the background, and it leads to, to what I think is the overarching theme of 1 Peter. And every week, we're going to come back to this theme. We're going to come back to this idea that Peter is laying out. And the theme is this, that the solution to being an outsider— The solution to being a Christian who feels like they're completely at odds with their culture is to realize that we are a covenant people. Now, now what it means that we are covenant people is that that we live as part of a covenant. This covenant is between God and us. So we are part of a covenant, an agreement between God and the believers. Now, you may be asking, what is a covenant? That's that's an important question. If you don't understand what a covenant is, the next five weeks are going to be really um, a struggle for you. You're going to be lost a lot. Biblically speaking, a covenant um, is an agreement where both sides agree to accomplish specific things, to do specific things, and there's rewards for doing it, and there's penalties for not doing it. And the entirety of the Old Testament, New Testament, is, is covered in language of covenants. Now, what's important um, is that we understand that covenants are not necessarily agreements or contracts. They're more strict than that, but they're also more um, beneficial than that. Um, and so for most of us, Um, In a modern context, the easiest way to explain covenants is marriage. Marriage is a biblical covenant. It follows that, it's the idea, right, of two parties joining together, stating the terms, right, the vows are the terms of the covenant, right, and and marriage is a covenant till death, right, and it's a covenant that has stipulations on on when, right, and richer and poorer, right, and health and sickness, right, It, it, it lays all this, but it's a covenant, it's a binding together, Right? And in fact, in a lot of marriage ceremonies, you see right, what God has bound together, let not man separate. Right? And so marriage is a great example of what a covenant is. And it's not, they're, they're, biblical covenants are not something that's easily set aside, are not, some, not something that is easily um, rejected. In fact, um, in the Old Testament, and you see this in, in Abraham's covenant with God, what they would do in the Old Testament times is to enter into a covenant with somebody, you would take a cow— and other various animals, you would cut them in half, you'd put one half of the animal on this side, one half of the animal on the other side, and then both parties of the covenant would walk through those animals together. And that was because the symbolism was, if you broke this covenant, right, whoever broke the covenant would end up like those animals cut in half. That was the seriousness of what a covenant is. And so what Peter's theming is, what Peter is going to tie everything in this letter together with, is that the solution to feel like you're an outsider in your culture to live faithfully to God, is to understand that as a believer, you are in covenant with God. You are part of the new covenant that we see brought about in the New Testament through the work of Christ. And so everything that Peter is going to be explaining and walking through is grounded in this theology. That is is the basis for the theology and the commandments that Peter is going to give. Um, And so we need to keep that in mind. So every week, really, the question we're going to be asking and then answering is, how do we live as covenantal people? How do we live as people that are in covenant with God, that are faithful in obedience to God, that are realizing the promises of the covenant? How do we do that? And so this week, as we ask that question, we're going to realize that, that Peter begins by saying the foundation and the first step to being in covenant with God is to remember God. And so if you have your Bibles, um, follow along. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and we're going to dive into this. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So the first thing when it comes to remembering God is Peter says that that we must remember God's purposes. 
that if we're going to live as covenant people, if we're going to live people as part of a covenant, it starts with remembering God and specifically his purposes. And what makes it so interesting is Peter expresses the purposes of God in relation to the three pur- people of the Trinity. If you look at verse 2, look at verse 2 with me. We see all three persons of the Trinity expressing what God is trying to accomplish, right? You have the foreknowledge of the Father, right? The situation these believers find themselves in is the plan and purpose of the Father. The Father knew it was going to happen, and he has orchestrated it to happen, right? And then you see the work of the Spirit, right? The, the Spirit is sanctifying them, right? And sanctifying them to what? for obedience to Jesus and for the sprinkling of the blood, right? You have the accomplished work of Christ completing and bringing about the purposes of the Father that the Spirit is now working inside of them, right? All three purpose people of the Trinity working for the same purposes, right? Each with their individual role, doing individual things, but accomplishing the purposes. And, and, and so as we read through this, what we're going to see is Peter layers all of this with Old Testament imagery, and we need to talk for a second about the end of verse 2, where, where Peter talks about the sprinkling of the blood, right? That the, the Spirit brings about obedience, and then the sprinkling of the blood. This is direct Old Testament imagery of the covenant that God made with the people of Israel. Now, if we had time, I'd go back to the Old Testament, we'd read all these passages, but we don't have time for that this morning. And so I'm just going to explain to you the two parts of the ceremony that the people took a part of to symbolize their covenant with God. So the first part of the ceremony is the people, before the priest, before, with everyone gathered, would declare their obedience to God and their attempts to be obedience to God. And the second part of that ceremony is the priest would then sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the people who just declared their obedience. Now, do you see in this verse the two parts of that ceremony, right? You have the Spirit working in the believer's obedience, right? The obedience of the people and then the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, It is a covenant. Peter's grounding. He's saying the purpose of God is to bring people into his covenant, into this new covenant. And so what we have, what Peter's saying is, the purpose for these believers is that they be saved, they be a part of the covenant. But the hardships, the purpose of the hardships and the trials and the persecution they will face is to make them realize that they are in this covenant. What he's saying is, is that they are being set against a people that are not a part of the covenant for the purposes for, for them to realize what it means to be a part of the covenant. It's like a knife, like sharpening a knife, right? You take a stone, which is not the knife, and the, the, the edge of the knife becomes sharper as you sharpen it, right? As, as, it's, as it's brought against that stone. And what Peter's saying is God's purpose is to use the hardships as a stone upon which faithful covenantal living of the people happens because they're put against a culture that does not see the covenant that God has made them a part of. And so he's really, what, what, what Peter's trying to get them to understand is that, is that the, the purpose of what God's doing is to set them apart, to make them different than the people around them. And so their hardships are going to ultimately lead them to examine deeper and to understand better the necessity and sufficiency of Christ's salvation. Is that the hardships serve to point them to Christ, who is the cornerstone of the covenant. We're going to talk about that next week when we, talk, when we look at ch- into chapter 1 and chapter 2. But as they, they examine what Christ has done deeper, they're led to sanctification. Now, now, there's something interesting we need to talk about with this covenant. If you look at verse 2, right, you have obedience, one part of the covenant, and the sprinkling of the blood, the other part of the ceremony. But what's interesting is we obviously understand that, that Christ does the 
sprinkling of the blood, right? We obviously understand that Christ's blood is what's being sprinkled. But if you look in verse 2, the, the person that brings about the obedience of the saints is not the saints. It's the sanctification of the Spirit. And what's interesting is, is, is God is working both parts of the covenant. He's obviously working his part, right, the, the saving, but he's even working the faith and obedience of the believers through the Spirit. The Spirit is the power that actually brings about faith and obedience of the believers. And so the idea that starts to take shape then is that, that God's purposes serve as a hedge in trials. So they, they protect the believer in trials because he's working both parts and he's using the trials to make the believer more dependent on the Spirit, right, and be more obedient, but also realize what has been accomplished in Christ. And so he does all of this together to bring about a covenantal people, a people that live in covenant with God. And so Peter kind of uses that as the preamble, as, as, the, as the mission statement for what he's going to explain. And so as Peter gets into the meat of his letters, he, he dives in, he needs to explain part of this covenant, specifically the salvation that comes in Christ. And so the second part, the second point that Peter makes, starting in verse 3, is that we are to remember God's salvation. So we first remember God's purposes, and then we remember God's salvation. Now, I need to make a point of clarification here. When I say God's salvation, I don't mean when God was saved. I don't mean God needed saving. In fact, that would make him not God. What I mean is that salvation belongs to God, that God is the one doing the saving. Right? It's Psalm 3.8. Salvation belongs to our Lord. And what Peter is going to explain, starting in verse 3 and running through verse 9, is that the salvation work, the, the, the thing that allows us to enter into the covenant with God, is the work of God himself. In fact, if you look at verse 3, you will see that we are saved according to his great mercy. That he has caused us to be born again. Right? Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus. Right? And we are kept and we are guarded in that in verse 5 by God's power. Peter doesn't leave really any room for us in this. What he's saying, what he's trying to get us to understand is that, that salvation belongs to the Lord. God is the instigator of salvation. And, and there's an importance for this. You see, what Peter understands is, is the reality that when faced with adversity, a natural question is going to come up. And that natural question in hardships and persecution and in feeling like an outsider, the question that arises is, can our temporary hardships compare to eternal glory? And we're constantly going to be weighing, is what I'm facing now worth eternal glory? And, and, and the reality is, I think it's rather easy for us to inflate the hardships we're going to going through, or to deflate the glory that is to come. And Peter says if we don't want to do that, we must ground both things in what Christ has accomplished. How do I know this? Well, first of all, Peter tells them, starting in verse 6, right, that what they're going through, the the situation they're going through, is not comparable to the glory that is to come. That's what he says in verse 8 and 9. He, he acknowledges that they are going through hardships, and these hardships, he says, are grieving them, right? That there is a, there's an anguish, there's a pain in the hardships they're in, but he's saying that's not comparable to the glory that is to come. 
Now, why is that? Why is that the case? And really, to understand why that is the case, we must go back to 3 and 4 and talk about this inheritance and, and what, where the inheritance comes from and what it is. You see, the reality is this. And Peter, on some level, is assuming, because he knows he's talking to believers, that they, they know this. But the reality is this. You are a sinner. And your sin has eternal consequences. Your sin is willful, proud, disobedience to the commands of God. And because God is perfectly loving and perfectly just, he will punish your sins. And biblically speaking, apart from Christ, the punishment for sins is the eternal wrath of God. But God, being rich in mercy, has not left us to face his eternal wrath. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross as our redeemer on our behalf. And so for those who are in Christ, for those whose Christ's death has been paid to their account, instead of taking the eternal wrath of God, they will spend eternity enjoying the presence of God. Right? Instead of spending eternity where the presence of God is something to be feared, right? Because it's, it's the pouring out of wrath, they will spend eternity worshiping and, and reveling in the presence of God. And they will do that with new resurrected bodies, which can feel no pain, which do not die, right? There will be no sin. There will be no tears, right? Everything that, that weighs of this life will be gone, and everything good will be left. And there will be a new creation. That is the glory that is to come. And so what Peter's saying is that for those that are in Christ, our old self is crucified with Christ, and we are given to new life. Peter literally says, right, we are born again. It's a second birth, as as Jesus will describe it in the Gospels. And the second birth, this, this inheritance that is to come, is secure not in us, but in the living hope, Jesus Christ. You see, the fact that Christ is living is a guarantee that we will see this future glory. Christ's ascension, his resurrection and his ascension, testify to us that what we will get to experience one day is true. And the reality is what Peter's saying is the result of our covenant with God is the believer's glorification. Glorification is the end result of covenanting with God. In fact, we see this in every covenant in the Bible, right? When God covenants with people, he leaves them better than he found them, right? When God covenants with Israel, the purpose is to bring them into the promised land and let them enjoy a land with milk and honey so they may live long in the land. Now, with the covenant that God makes with Israel, Israel's disobedience nullifies that promise, but that's the purpose. The covenant that God makes with Noah— right? It's not flood the earth, right? Not to destroy the people, to give them life, right? When God covenants with Adam, the purpose of what the covenant God makes with Adam in Genesis, right, is that the people may multiply, they may live, right? God's covenants always end with the glorification of the people he's covenanting with. And so what Peter is saying to them is that their trials will naturally cause them to do something, And that something is to take their focus off the coming glory and what has been accomplished in Christ and put their faith and trust in themselves. Trials will naturally cause them to look inwardly towards themselves. And what we know is that a salvation and a faith built on ourselves will not last. Salvation and faith that looks inward is ultimately shallow 
hopeless, powerless, and weak faith. But salvation built on the power of God will last for all eternity. Right? That's what what Peter says in verse 9. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. For all eternity, you will be secure. There is no power, there is no authority, there is no trial, there is no hardship that can overcome salvation rooted in what Christ has accomplished. But if your faith is built on what you accomplish, every trial will overcome it because every trial is a testament to your lack of power. And what we naturally do, right, when adversity comes, we naturally think it's the end of the world. Or at least I do. I maybe can't speak for you, right? Every hardship always seems like a mountain when really it's most of the time a molehill. And so what Peter's saying to them is that if we don't remember what God has done in saving us, right, how we entered into the covenant, we will ultimately not view ourselves as covenantal people. And so Peter concludes verse 9 with ending the covenant as a salvation of our souls. That when the covenant's brought to its completion— and we enter into it perfectly, it will be our salvation, right? The hardships, the trials, the suffering we have now, we will be delivered from. But we have to understand, the only reason we'll be delivered from them is because of what Christ has accomplished. And in fact, Peter's going to explain this a little further and and see this a little further, and he's going to do that in verse 10. If you look at the beginning of verse 10, he says, concerning this salvation— Now, Peter's going to do here what I've been accused of a time or two, and that's he's going to take a tangent. He's going to go off a little bit and and take a tangent here, and we know he's taking a tangent because something changes. And what changes is in in verses 3 through 9, Peter's talking about a future thing, right? He's talking about a future hope, a future glorification. And in verse 10, he all of a sudden changes, and he starts talking about the past and the present, right? The, The time frame of what Peter's talking about changes, And instead of talking about a future hope, he's going to ground what the believers are in in something past and present. And this gives us our third key, that to live as a covenantal people means that we remember God's actions. We remember what God has done. And so what Peter's doing here, starting in verse 10 and running through verse 12, is he's making a point about the nature of salvation, specifically that salvation through Christ is an event which God has been working for a long time. Whether you're a believer living in, in the first century AD or you're a believer, believer living nowadays, your salvation is a, an event which God has been working from the beginning of creation. And so what Peter's trying to get them to understand is that they are not the beginning of a story. They are not an end of the story. They are a middle part of God's story. And he does this by pointing to, right, that the evidence is the prophecies of the prophets in the Old Testament— and the work of the evangelist that brought the gospel to them. Look at verse 10. He says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ that was in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, and the things that have been now announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look. What Peter's saying here is the prophets, 
right, who live in the Old Testament look forward to the future coming of Christ. They look forward to the glory of Christ being revealed, knowing that they did not live in an age in which that glory had been revealed. And so they look forward and they wrote their prophecies. God says clearly through Peter here that they wrote their prophecies so that we might know that God has accomplished what he set out to accomplish. And then, right, he sends evangelists. He sends the people that, that, that brought the gospel to them to preach to them that God has accomplished what he planned to accomplish. And so both the past work of faithful saints and the current work of the saints that had brought the gospel to them testify that God is faithful. And so what Peter's saying is, is we strengthen our faith in the current covenant in which we live by looking to how God brought about our participation in that covenant. Here's what I mean by that. The more we see the work of God as not something that begins and ends in our life, but as something that God is working on a cosmic scale from the beginning of time to the end of the time, the more we are able to live in that reality, the more we're able to live as covenant people. But when, when the faith that we have begins and ends with us, right, then the hardships don't make sense. Because if, if faith is all about us, if our salvation is all about us, right, then why are we suffering at all? Why doesn't God just deliver us right now? But when we see that we are part of a, a, a cosmic story, a, a a story that spans all time with God and Christ as the center of it, then our, then our sufferings and our trials are put in the perspective of what God is doing, not what we desire. In reality, God's past faithfulness is a testament to his future faithfulness. And so in going through hardships and trials, we are ultimately expecting God to be faithful in the future, right? In the current and the future. But if we don't see God's faithfulness in the past, we'll wonder, is he faithful? Perfect. I left myself just enough time to take the tangent I wanted to take. Okay, good. I figure if Peter can take a tangent, I can take a tangent. Um, That's how that works, right? Um, We are in a Baptist church, a Southern Baptist church. And we are in a Baptist church that has 125 plus years of history. And it would be arrogant and rude for us not to take a moment and reflect on God's faithfulness to bring us here today. God was telling, through Peter, these Christians, that they needed to reflect on what, how God had brought about their salvation, how God's faithfulness in the past. And we also should reflect on that. We stand here today because of the faithfulness of men and women we probably never met, for, who for decades and centuries and thousands of years were faithful to what Christ had called them to do. In fact, the reality is, for most of us, if not every single one of us in the room, the only reason we are believers is because faithful men and women shared the gospel with us. We are dependent on the work of people that came before us. And their faithfulness should serve as a testament to us that we can be faithful through hardships and adversity. Because as much as we like to think that nobody's ever faced what we face, nobody's ever gone through what we've gone through, the reality is, is that historically speaking, we live in the best times of any people in human history. And even as Christians in America in the 21st century who are facing persecution that most American Christians have never had to face, the reality is, even in modern day context, most Christians have it a lot worse than we do. 
And their faithfulness should serve as a reminder to us that we can be faithful to God in hardships. And not just that we can be faithful to God, but that God will be faithful to us. And so I understand that it's in vogue to distance yourself from the history of your church, the history of your convention, the history of of who you are as a people. But I firmly believe, as as Peter is attesting to here in Scripture, that in doing that, you lose something about what it means to see God's faithfulness, not just in your life, but generation after generation, people after people. And I'm not saying everyone that that takes the name Baptist out of their church sign is, is bad people. I don't think that's the case. But in saying that we stand in tradition of faithful people, we're not just testifying to, to the faithfulness of those people. We're testifying to God's faithfulness to deliver his gospel generation after generation and people after people. And so let's remember God's actions. Let's remember how God brought about through human government, through people's decisions, right? Believers on the continent of North America then founded a country that that allowed the gospel to flourish. And then God used those people to send missionaries all across the world to where now the largest missionary agencies reside in North America and send the gospel to peoples all over the globe who many, without those agencies, without the money, without the resources, the people coming from North America would never hear the gospel. And we are a part of of God's faithfulness to send the gospel to those nations. And so there's a responsibility we have there, but there's also a testament to God's faithfulness in that. We cannot live faithfully in the covenant of God unless we are constantly using what he's done in the past and what he's doing in the present as a refreshment for our future hope of what he will accomplish if we aren't always looking back to his faithfulness, either through his word or through faithful men and women, and if we aren't always testifying to each other about how God is faithful, we will not see God's faithfulness in future trials. And the reality is, he is always faithful, and he will be faithful in future trials, but in our short-sightedness, we constantly need reminded of that. It's not God's failing, it's our failing. But even in that weakness, God is faithful to give us testimonies that make us trust him, that cause us to put our hope and faith in him. And so we're called to remember God. And so Peter layers all of this together. And in verse 13, Peter gives us the therefore. Therefore, if you're going to remember God, if God is going to be the center and the foundation that our covenant is built on, Peter says, you will do two things. If believers are going to remember God, if they're going to remember the truth of the covenant, and therefore if they're going to live as covenantal people, if we are going to live as people in covenant with God, Peter says we will do two things. That living in covenant will always lead to setting our minds on God and being holy. These two commands, set your minds on God and be holy. 
in verse 13, 14, and 15 are, are the two commands that Peter is going to reference and come back to throughout the entirety re- the tire of the book. This, these are the two things that Peter is going to consistently call the believers to do throughout the rest of 1 Peter. Because they are the two foundational things that, that being part of covenant will lead to, right? So if we, to understand this, let's look at what Peter says, starting in verse 13. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. You see, the first thing he says, right, set your minds on Christ. This is remember God, right? He's reiterating that that the first thing that the covenant people will do, if you're part of the covenant, you will look to God because you understand that your admittance and your continued acceptance in the covenant is completely dependent on God, right? On, on what he's done, on what Christ has accomplished. The only reason you will enter into the covenant, the only reason you will stay in the covenant is not because of your good works, not because of your faithfulness, but because of God's. And so he tells them, set your minds on God. Be so reminded. Don't be distracted by the trials and hardships you're going through, the persecution you're, faith, you're facing. Instead, be ready to act, right? Prepare your minds for action. Be ready to act by focusing on God, on what he's done, on who he is, on what he's accomplished, as testified in Scripture. Now, what I think is so interesting about this um, is, is this is purely a mental task, Right? Setting your minds is a mental activity. And what's really interesting is we often think of our beliefs as rooted in our hearts, right? As, as an emotional thing, which in some ways is true, right? right? Our beliefs in some ways flow out of our emotions, are expressed in our emotions. But biblically speaking, the reality is, is that what we intentionally think, what we intentionally see, and what we intentionally study will directly shape what we believe, and then what Peter is saying is what we believe will directly relate to what we do. And so Peter's tying all of this together, everything we said, by, by telling the believer to set their mind upon Christ. That, that in remembering God and setting our minds up, upon Christ, we will live then as people with minds set upon Christ. And in constantly reminding ourselves that we are in covenant with God through Christ, we will then express that in what we do. And the outpouring of that expression, right, that obedience will see its expression in our holiness. And so what Peter's saying here, that the commands that Peter's giving is that if we set our minds upon Christ, if we live as covenant people, we will act in ways that are holy. Why? Because we are in covenant with a God who is holy. Right? It's outpouring not of our goodness, but of the goodness of God on who God is. It comes not from our sinful nature, but his perfect nature. And so we've got to be careful because next week we're going we're to dive into what does it mean to be holy? Because Peter spends a lot of time talking about that. But before we begin, I, I have to say this. The reality is, is that if you are in covenant with God, the outpouring of your life will be Holiness. And if you are not in covenant with God, it is impossible for you to live a holy life. God is holy. Say, live holy. He says, because your God is holy, 
live holy. It's the outpouring of what God has done that allows us to live holy lives. It's because we're in communion and covenant with him. And so this morning, it would be a negligence of duty if I not present this to you. If you are not saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are not holy. And so because you are not holy, you will not be able to experience the glorification that is to come for the believer. Because the reality is, is that God's presence for those that are not holy is a wrathful experience. If you don't believe me, go look at how Isaiah and John enter into the presence of God. The reality is, is that God's presence is purifying. And so if you're in his presence and you are not holy, you will face his wrath. And so if you're here this morning and you've not put your hope in Jesus Christ alone to save you, repent and believe today. Because if not, you are staring down the barrel of God's wrath. And so repent, turn from your sins, trust in Christ to save you today, and experience all the goodness of covenant with him. But it doesn't end there. If you are a believer here today and you you know right? You know that you will see the glorification as to come. Then I challenge you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, live obediently to God. And so as, as the band comes, we need to walk through what that is. The obedience there, right, is that to be obedient might mean for you baptism. It might mean following Christ and the command he's given to be baptized. It might mean following him in the commandment, right, to be a part of the local church, Or it might mean just to simply be obedient by trusting him in whatever trial or circumstance you're going through in your life. But the reality is, wherever you are, either unbeliever who needs to turn and repent, or a believer who needs to continue in obedience to God, God is calling you to himself today. He's calling you to live as a member of his great and glorious covenant. He has set us apart for a purpose. And that purpose purpose is to be a part of the covenant with him. And so this morning, will you do that? Will you turn from your sins and trust in him, living obediently to all that he has commanded? Let us reflect on that as we stand and sing. So I'll stand.